Hello, everyone. Welcome to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. I'm so glad you could join us today. G. Michael Hoff is an American novelist, well known for his post-apocalyptic fiction series, The New World. What makes Hoff and this book series unique, however, is that Hoff is also a combat veteran of the United States Marine Corps and a former bodyguard for the Saudi royal family. These experiences really shine through his works, and they, fiction novels, have been praised for their technical detail and historically driven insight. Summarizing Hoff's amazing ability to provide thoughtful analysis through post-apocalyptic fiction is a quote from Those Who Remain, the seventh book of the New World series. Hoff writes, Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. This quote has blown up across the internet. In a few short words, within a fiction novel, Hoff seemingly summarizes the life cycle of nearly every great empire in human history. You might not be a history person, but with some thought, I bet you can see what he's talking about. The Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, the empires of Mali, Spain, or China. There is a common story with all these empires. They rise from nothing and climb to the top. They enjoy a wonderful golden age of undisputed wealth, power, and prestige. But then, inevitably, they fall. How does this happen? How do empires like the Roman or British fall? These are empires that had legitimate grounds to claim that they conquered the known world. What happened to them? That's where I find Hoff's quote so profound. How is it possible that world superpowers, super states, the unconquerable empires of history all fall? As Hoff said, good times create weak men. Essentially, the fall and destruction of empires is rooted in their golden ages. While at their height, with no one to threaten their rule, the great empires, time and time again, in different ages of history and parts of the world, embrace attitudes and systems which cannot sustain their great success. Good times create weak men, and those weak men create hard times. I think one could easily make an argument that this is what you see happening in our world today. But let's take a step back. This isn't a history lecture or a political podcast. So what I want to suggest is that Hoff's quote also speaks to us as individuals. Our good times are fraught with danger. We work, we battle, we strive all to make it to the good times. But what happens when we get there? Happily ever after, like in the fairy tales? I don't think so. Unless some tragedy or disaster gets us first, we inevitably end our good times. We fight desperately to get there, but once we're in the good times, habits and attitudes change, standards and expectations transform, ambitions and motivation dries up, and soon enough, the good times are over. Frankly, I think this is especially true of when we think of our lives as Christians. If you have been a Christian for a number of years, I suspect that you have good times that you look back to. Times when you were on fire for God, when you were walking the walk and running the race, when you could see God's work and blessing wherever you went. How did those good times come to an end? Maybe you're a Christian listening to this today and you're in the good times. Praise God, but how do you stay there? You've seen it in others. Good times, even as a Christian, so often come to an end. 
Maybe you're a seeker or a new Christian today, longing for those good times of faith, striving to get there. How do you avoid getting into this cycle of rise and fall? I believe a major part of the answer, whether you're a longtime Christian seeking to return to good times, a Christian currently in those good times praying to stay there, or someone hoping one day to experience those good times, I think part of the answer is to honestly recognize and confront the danger lurking in the good times. Even times are good as a Christian when it feels like nothing can get between your walk with God. Danger is lurking. And this danger is serious, it's sinister, and it's so easy to fall into. So what is this danger in the good times? How can we identify it so that we can avoid it or thwart it? Well, to do that, we're going to turn to God's word. We're going to pick back up in the life of Solomon and see him during his good times, his best times, when he was king of Israel at Israel's height. We're going to learn from him how dangerous the good times can be, how the good times are threatened by greed, pride, and complacency. We're going to see how Solomon began to crack during the good times so that we might learn from his mistakes. So that in our lives as Christians, we might avoid getting trapped in Hoff's cycle of life. So let's dive in. Follow with me as I read 1 Kings 9, 10 to 28. Let's see how Solomon's golden age as Israel's king and learn from how he failed to avoid the danger lurking in those good times. 1 Kings 9, 10 to 28. At the end of 20 years, in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold as much as he desired. King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given them, they did not please him. Therefore he said, What kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived there and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer and lower Beth Horon and Balath and Tamar in the wilderness and in the land of Judah and all the cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem in Lebanon and in all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction. These Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were soldiers. They were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were in charge over Solomon's work, 550 who had charge of the people who carried on the work. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. 
Three times a year, Solomon used to offer the burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar he had built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezon-Geber, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought from there gold, 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. Before getting into the first danger Solomon faced, let's just acknowledge how good these times were for Solomon. This cannot be understated. Solomon was king of Israel at Israel's absolute height. The first way to know that is just by thinking about Solomon's economic position. In the first verses of our passage, we see Solomon's relationship with Hiram, king of Tyre. During Solomon's reign, Hiram was a sort of junior king to Solomon, acting like a vassal. He had provided Solomon with cedar and cypress, and in verse 14, we learn that Hiram had sent 120 talents of gold to Solomon. That might not sound that great, but during this time, one talent of gold weighed 75 pounds. So, as a gift, Hiram had sent to Solomon 9,000 pounds of gold. Feel free to run the modern conversion of that to get a sense of how wealthy Solomon had become. More than that, in the final verses of our passage, we learn that with the help of Hiram, Solomon had sent out a trade fleet to Ophir, a distant city perhaps in modern-day Ethiopia or India. From there, it is reported that Solomon received 420 talents of gold, 16 tons of gold. From these two sources alone, Solomon's wealth would place him comfortably on a top 10 list of the wealthiest people in world history, right alongside Julius Caesar of the Roman Empire and Mansa Musa of Mali. This is a level of wealth that is truly unfathomable, and it doesn't even mention the land trade routes. Solomon established land trade routes. Throughout this text, it lists cities and, his, and historians and archaeologists recognize that Solomon's empire would have stretched across a major trade route connecting Lebanon and northern Mesopotamia all the way to Egypt. This dominance on land and sea would have made Solomon so very incredibly rich. These were good times. But remember the ultimate source. Underneath the gifts, the trade, the treasure fleet was God's promise to Solomon. In 1 Kings 3.13, God promised Solomon that he would give him both riches and honor so that no other king should ever compare with him in all his days. Solomon was rich, Solomon was wealthy, and it was all in accordance with God's promise of blessing. But here's where we see the first danger. In the good times, watch out for greed. Greed. In accordance with God's word, Solomon was blessed with an unfathomable wealth. But what did he do in response? To Hiram, a loyal friend, a brother king, he gives him 20 towns in Galilee. Seems like a wonderful gift in return. You gave me 9,000 pounds of gold, I'll give you 20 cities. That sounds good. But our text fills us in. Look at verses 12 to 13 again. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore, he said, what kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul 
to this day. Solomon was blessed with gold and all the resources that comes with a vast trade empire. And how does he bless his friend, neighbor, and ally? He gives him some rundown backwater cities in Galilee. By Hiram's response, we know that this gift was not fit for a king. This sounds like Solomon, knowing he has to give something to Hiram, giving him something he didn't really want anyway. Solomon became all about the money, so he gave away some cities that did nothing for his economy. This alone already shows a major crack in Solomon that formed during the good times. As Israel's king, God's ruler over the sons of Abraham, Solomon was supposed to guide Israel in God's mission for them. Part of that mission given to Abraham and his descendants was to be a blessing to the nations. Solomon here had a chance to bless the nations, to be what Israel was meant to be. But corrupted by wealth, which was given as a blessing, Solomon cheaps out. He gave Hiram a gift, but this gift wasn't a blessing. God blessed Solomon with wealth, but he failed to pour out that blessing onto those around him. But it gets worse than that. Those poor, financially unhelpful villages that Solomon gave away were cities of Israel. They were cities in the promised land. Those cities might have been worth nothing to Hiram, but they should have been worth everything to Solomon. Those cities, though impoverished, were part of the promised land. Those measly towns were sworn to Israel by God's covenant. Those backwater villages were part of the land that Joshua longed to conquer by faith, blood, and sword. Those settlements were the divine inheritance of the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were Israel's heritage, but they didn't promise wealth, so Solomon gave them away without hesitation. The king of Israel, the one who was meant to safeguard the promised land on behalf of God, freely gave some of it away. Take that in. Stew on that. This is like what you see on those pawn shop or antique shows. Someone comes in with a priceless family heirloom, a ring passed on from their great-grandmother, a vintage sword inherited from their great-uncle, something that has undeniable sentimental value to their family. And what happens on those shows? More often than not, the person sells the heirloom to make a quick buck. They sell something of rich, sentimental value, which their kids or grandkids would pay thousands of dollars one day to get back. That's Solomon, but on a national scale. Solomon has been blessed by God with good times, amazing times, a golden age of wealth and economic dominance. But what does he do? He succumbs to greed. He makes it all about the money. When he should have been blessing the nations, he gives a worthless gift. When he should have been protecting the promised land, he gives part of it away. In the good times, watch out for greed. But during the good times, you also need to watch out for pride. God had blessed Solomon with a prosperous and powerful kingdom. Solomon was able to do so much more than David because of what God had done for him. As Solomon reflected in 1 Kings 5.4, But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. God had given Solomon and his kingdom peace and security. And this peace allowed Solomon to build up the kingdom. In verses 17 to 19 of our passage, we see Solomon conduct a massive building campaign. He had cities built just to store all of his amazing possessions. We're told Solomon built whatever he desired, not just in Jerusalem, 
but all the way in Lebanon, anywhere under his domain, he was able to build whatever he wanted. That's an unmatched display of what the blessing of wealth and peace allows kingdoms to do. What we see here is Solomon as king of Israel at Israel's height as a nation. But ironically, it's while we see Solomon as king of Israel at Israel's height that we begin to see Solomon stop acting like a king of Israel. This compromise is revealed through our text in two aspects. First, in verse 16, we are told that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had to conquer the Canaanite city of Gezer. He burned it, killed all of its inhabitants, and gave it to Solomon's wife, his daughter. You might read this and think, wow, what a brutal and bizarre wedding present from a father to a daughter. But there's actually something deeper going on here. Gezer was a city in the south of the Promised Land. It was a city that the Israelites, all the way back in Deuteronomy, were commanded by God to conquer and destroy. This was a wicked Canaanite city that Israel, acting as God's priests and judges, was supposed to devote to destruction. For Solomon as king of Israel, Gezer was unfinished business. As king of Israel, it would have been his duty to finally carry this out. Instead of building great cities to store his chariots and horsemen, he should have sent them out to war to finally do what Israel was commanded. But in this bizarre turn of events, Solomon is busy building himself new cities, and it's Pharaoh of Egypt who does the task. The irony is not lost on the author of our text. The description of Pharaoh's conquest, the burning of the city with fire, the execution of the Canaanites, this mirrors the language of Deuteronomy. Pharaoh of Egypt was truly doing what Solomon of Israel was supposed to do. But Solomon was too busy building his new cities to worry about the ones God called him to take. But again, there's more. Not only does Solomon fail to act like a king of Israel, he actually begins to act how you would expect a pharaoh of Egypt to act. Verse 15 introduces that section by saying, the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted. In verses 20 to 21, we learn that the Canaanites left in Israel were enslaved by Solomon, them and their descendants. These were people that Israel was supposed to destroy. They didn't, and now they're just foreigners in the land. And out of everything Solomon could have done with them, expel them, treat, treat them justly as foreigners, integrate them, instead of all those things, Solomon enslaves them and ensures that their descendants will be slaves as well. Reading this text, Solomon is sounding a lot like the Pharaoh of Egypt who enslaved the people of Israel for generations before the Exodus. He's not sounding like a king of Israel committed to justice and righteousness. Rather, he's sounding like a Pharaoh who wants free labor to build his monuments and cities. The times are now so good. Solomon seems so secure. His kingdom appears so unstoppably prosperous that Solomon forgets himself. He forgets the divine law that guides and governs his kingship. He forgets that in Deuteronomy, a book he's supposed to copy out himself and read all the days of his life. In there, God outlines how a king of Israel is supposed to act. In those laws, you see nothing about slavery or building new cities. Rather, you see the call not to act like Egypt, to not take too many wives, to not be obsessed with silver and gold. You see the king called to walk in humility, to follow God's law. But Solomon's pride, 
the luxury and prestige of the good times got in the way of that. Solomon probably thought he was responsible for the good times, so he was going to do things his way. But Solomon's way was not God's way. It wasn't the way of a king of Israel. It was the way of Pharaoh, the historic oppressor of Israel. In a lot of ways, this mirrors the tragic end of the Puritans. When people hear of the Puritans, they think of the pious pilgrim fathers, faithful Christians who left England, came to North America so that they might worship God with freedom and liberty from an oppressive state church and wicked king. That part is certainly true, but what people often neglect is how the Puritans acted once they gained control in the new world. They fled a ruthless state church system, but when they came to New England, they swiftly established their own state churches. They fled persecution from other Christians who disagreed with them. But when they established themselves in Connecticut and Massachusetts, they persecuted other Christians as well. It might surprise some of you to know that the early Baptists experienced great persecution at the hands of the American Puritans. Fines, imprisonments, destruction of churches were common. One famous example is the story of Obadiah Holmes. Holmes was a Baptist minister seeking to hold a Baptist service in Massachusetts. When he was caught by the Puritan authorities in 1651, he was imprisoned, fined, and when he failed to pay the fine, he was whipped publicly in the streets of Boston. The Puritans fled hardship and persecution under a state church in England, but when they came to America and established themselves as the power, they acted just like that state church they fled. In the good times, watch out for pride. Remember who you are, where you come from, how God has blessed you and delivered you. Do not succumb to pride when everything is looking good. It will change you and not for the better. The final lesson we learn from Solomon is to watch out for complacency. So much of the life of Solomon revolves around the temple. And in our text, we get some amazing news. Verse 25. Three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. Under Solomon, the house of the Lord was complete. And more than that, we read of Solomon doing what he's supposed to do, going up to the temple regularly and regularly offering burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. God had blessed Israel with a temple under the reign of Solomon, and it is being used as it should be. Good news, good times. But there remains a cause for concern. As we have been moving through this text, we have been seeing all the places where Solomon is succumbing to greed and pride. These are serious sins before a holy God, especially for the king of Israel, God's chosen servant over his chosen people. Yet, our text never mentions anything about Solomon's repentance for his sins. We read nothing here about Solomon humbling himself before the Lord and seeking his forgiveness and help. And if you're tempted to think that this is just an omission for the sake of time and space, and Solomon probably did repent for the sins and failings we just read about, I think you need to grapple with the reality of how the Bible speaks of Israel's kings. When kings, good or bad, repent, the text makes sure to let us know. In 2 Chronicles, we're told of Hezekiah's repentance, and we're told of how Manasseh humbled himself before the Lord. With Solomon, 
We're just told he did the public acts of religion. This silence of this text is so incredibly loud. It's thoughtful. It's deliberate. Solomon was content with the formal temple worship, but personal repentance and humbling himself wasn't on his agenda. The times were good. He was blessed. What need was there to go what would seem like above and beyond with personal contrition? In the good times, Solomon became complacent. He was content with the outward rhythm of sacrifices three times a year. The times were good. What more did he need? That's the danger of good times. Watch out for complacency. We do not have a temple today, but recognize that we have similar dangers when it comes to our faith in the good times. While for Solomon, he became content with public worship, in today's time in our evangelical circles, I think we become content with private worship. When the times are good, we are tempted to forget or neglect our need for public worship, our need for the church, our need for structured religion. We're tempted to think we can do it on our own. I'll pray by myself. I'll read my Bible by myself. I'll repent directly to God. No need for anyone else. But what God makes clear is that his people need both the public and the private, the inward and the outward, the relationship and the religion. In the good times when you're feeling like your walk with God is strong and nothing can stop you, don't neglect half of the picture. God cares about the heart, but he also says that the church is the household of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In the good times, watch out for complacency. Remember your life and walk with God is built on the inward realities and outward expressions of faith. So that's today's message. There is danger lurking in the good times, especially as Christians in our walk with God. That's something you need to know and prepare for, whether you're longing for the good times again, seeking to maintain the good times, or hoping to experience the good times for the first time. In the good times, watch out for greed, pride, and complacency. They present real dangers that must be recognized and avoided. But in conclusion now, I want to close by bringing these three dangers together and addressing what unifies them. What makes these dangers so dangerous for Solomon as king as Israel and us as Christians? And that's that these dangers warp our understanding of the good times itself. The danger of greed for Solomon was that the good times would stop being about life in the promised land, but instead become about having a massive trade empire. The danger of pride for Solomon was that the good times would stop being about peace and justice in Israel, but rather be about beautiful cities built by slaves. The danger of complacency for Solomon was that the good times would no longer be about enjoying God's presence and relationship, but rather just doing the bare minimum to keep God appeased. The overarching danger about the good times is that our understanding of the good times can be skewed during them. For us as Christians today, we're not kings of Israel like Solomon, but we face a similar challenge. We need to remember what truly defines those good times. Our good times as Christians are defined by the gospel of eternal life, the promise of peace with God, the reality of union with Christ, the gift of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not just now, but for eternity. God doesn't promise us wealth, health, or comfort. He might give us those things, but those are just extra blessings given with a purpose. Great, good, and useful, 
but not the foundation of true everlasting good times. When you get those extra blessings, whatever they might be, do not let greed, pride, or complacency get you twisted. Whether it's time, talents, or resources, use them, enjoy them, but do so generously and humbly, recognizing that gifts are given with a purpose. Remember, true good times are rooted in what God promises, himself. What makes the good times good? God's love, God's care, God's peace. Better than any amount of gold, palace, or kingdom, God promises us himself. That's the true good times for Christians the best times anyone could ever have. It's being able to live and walk in fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, the true King of Israel. Whether you're a mature Christian, a new Christian, or a non-Christian, if you desire good times, the best times, fix your eyes upon Christ. Turn from sin, seek Him first, and embrace the eternal blessings God promises through the gospel. He does not promise the good times of our world striving for money, power, or convenience, but he offers life, life abundant and eternal. And this offer is only found in Jesus Christ, the King whose kingdom will never fall and whose reign will never end. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now that you would keep this passage in our hearts and on our minds as we go about our business this week. Help us to remember the truths of this text and the lessons that we can learn from the life of Solomon. Help us to recognize that you alone are the source of the good times, that the true good times are defined by relationship with you, walking with you, being united with Jesus Christ, being indwelt by your Holy Spirit. Help us to embrace these things and to walk in light of them. And as you bless us in different ways with time, talent, and resources, Help us to keep those things in the right context. Help us to ward off thoughts of greed, pride, or complacency. Help us to stay fixed and firm, rooted in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross and by rising again for his people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today. I pray that this message will be a blessing for you. If it already has been, please share it with a friend. We'd love to let them in on what we're talking about and learning about from God's word. And as always, for more messages of hope, visit us at www.gracebc.ca. Take care.